Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 281st episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's digging out the stakes and crosses to prepare for Innistrad's assault on your wallet this fall. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with everyone. Our show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to track your specs, chat in Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, we're in the summer lull, but there still seems like there's plenty going on. What do we got on the agenda this week? Well, uh, I figured we would do four segments. Our segment one will be the MTGO metagame we can review. Our segment two will be our top paper movers. We'll talk about, oh, apparently all foils this week. <laughs> uh, our segment three, cards to watch. We'll run through some cards we have our eyes on and uh, some mild uh, commentary, I think. Some, some Maybe some, some very mild friction to be found there this week uh and finally our topic of the week given that it's a little quiet on the magic front uh for the first time in what feels like two years um we'll talk about some of uh some great summer board games to get into something to do when you're hanging out with your buddies outside or getting back indoors for the first time in a while some stuff we really enjoyed um so let's start off our metagame week interview here. The first is the modern challenge from just a couple days ago. And it looks like uh, Just Guy Control taking down top place with four of the prismatic ending. That's the new Modern Horizons 2 removal spell, some counter spell, the four of Shark Typhoon that we've seen before, a um, handful of Planeswalkers. So uh, some good, good, solid Just Guy Control build here. Real. Uh, I, don't, I was going to say nuts and potatoes, soup and potatoes, meat and potatoes. Bread, bread, meat and potato, bread and butter, nuts and bolts. Yeah. Kind of just guy control. Yeah. All that I mean, the, stuff. The, the story the story here is this was Gabriel and the Seif taking down the modern challenge with a control deck. And so there are going to be people that say, ah, whatever, like Yellow Hat could take, take it down with anything. But reality is that this is, this is a real tough format right now their card overall card quality is maybe as high as it's ever been in modern um minus some portions you know the period of time where eldrazi was completely broken the era of the brief era of hogak etc but in terms of cards that were determined to be reasonable for the format this is a very strong uh scenario to just walk in with a control deck and quote you know luck your way into winning a modern challenge doesn't mean we're going to see blue white control or just guy control every week but you know i would certainly be adding it to my gauntlet to make sure 
I've got a game plan certainly out of the sideboard to be able to address iterations of this deck moving forward. Yeah, I mean, if there's one type of deck that you can't just slap together the same 75 every week, it's control shells because they have to <clears throat> adapt to the metagame. It's not like the, you know, the Dragon Rage Channeler decks that are just going to show up with every four of they can fit in the deck and roll uh, every event. Other, you know, other than that, I didn't find any of the card choices here particularly outstanding. Not about what you'd expect for one of these, um, you know, the, the four uh, prismatic ending is probably like the most noteworthy for the most part. But again, that's an uncommon, so not too too important regardless. I mean, maybe it might just be Shark Typhoon, honestly, just for further entrenching how important that is to control decks in modern I would actually argue that Prismatic Ending is the most important financial card in this list because foil, uh, old border foils of this card are already going for thirty or thirty-five dollars in Japan, where they've been they've been as low as five dollars, and I think they're currently around eight on TCG. Um, with the number of formats where this card is seeing play, because it also was in a whole bunch of decks in the Legacy Top Eight this weekend, um, it's just completely supplanting Swords to Plowshares and Path to Exile. Well, which, which I certainly did not see coming for the sorcery speed white removal. Yeah, I mean, if I, I kind of without having looked at it recently was just assuming the price on that was already pretty, pretty hefty for those foils. We didn't really get a great buy-in period unless you were, I guess, maybe pre-ordering. Um, and I don't think very many people at all would have expected this to be um, as good as it has seemed to be so far. I don't is. It, you're telling me that at retro frame foil prismatic endings are $35 in Japan and $8 on TCG player? That is correct. Well, I have to say that does sound like an opportunity. Japan might be overshooting it a little bit, but probably not by enough to make it not worth buying them on TCG player. Slight collection. It's not 35, it's 25 on the Japanese copies. But thirty-five on the English copies in Japan. That's uh, that's a meatball, and and the buy list is not, you know, double current TCG, so the arbitrage isn't instantaneous or obvious quite yet. But when Japan gets out ahead of things on a competitive card like this, I tend to respect their ability to spot strong tech. <laughs> oh, and and start and I have picked up you know small cadres of the OBF prismatic endings uh, in the five to six dollar range in preparation that that is a future fifteen to twenty dollar card minimum in North America. Oh yeah, well yeah. If you had asked me without having looked, I probably would have guessed it was fifteen to twenty already. Um, yeah, I it, this would not mark the first time I have bought cards in America at retail price because of what Japan had priced them at. Because it was, it was like, oh, well, they they are clearly seeing some writing on the wall that we haven't gotten to yet. So, uh, yeah, I have no problem with that with that plan. And I, I wouldn't be buying them on TCG Player today or with the intent of arbitrage, but rather just, okay, I'm just going to buy them now because it looks like this is the future we're headed for. I, I certainly have not been displeased to see any version of foil, prismatic inning, regular, old border, or even etched show up in my Modern Horizons 2 collector booster boxes because I even the etched ones are going to be $10 plus at some point. Um, not, not the least reason to which is it's a fancy looking version that is unlikely to warp. 
Because whereas the, the etch cards are definitely too dark and they look dirty even in sleeve, they also don't warp. So there is that. Yeah. Uh, in terms in terms of some some modern players and legacy players perhaps rolling with etched. They may end up the uh, budget um, premium version. Like I, I don't want to fork out $40 for the true retrofoils, but I'll pay 15 for the... Uh, you know, the etched foils that are less likely to get me kicked out of a tournament, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, prismatic endings right alongside four expressive iteration there, which is another uncommon that I think people caught people off guard. I think people saw that and thought, ah, well, that's a pretty strong card for standard, but probably can't can't push any further back. But iteration has also pushed back into modern and legacy. Um, so that's worth noting. Shark Typhoon, as you mentioned, uh, as a four of seems to be present in pretty much any blue-based control deck in the format. You've got a single counterspell here. Anybody that was banking on premium counterspells being super hot sellers on a continual basis is probably hoping to see this be a higher number. Three or four copies would be much better. Uh, And it's not like they're running any extra in the sideboard. Oh, no, they did have the other full three in the sideboard, so that's not bad. Yeah. I will say that my predictions from Modern Horizons 2 have not borne out fantastic on some of these because I don't think I was enthralled with either Prismatic Ending or uh, the other one, Expressive Iteration. Uh, expressive Iteration which is not, Strixhaven. Yeah, which is not Modern. Yeah, Modern Horizons. But those are two uncommons that I remember speaking about and being like, eh, and now they're definitely doing work. Yep. Uh, all right, so second in that... Uh, challenge was Teamer Footfalls. Uh, looked like it was kind of knocked out of the meta for a couple weeks there, but in both of the challenges we're going to look at today from the 17th and 18th, it was second in this one and first in the other. So uh, definitely can't count this out yet. And of course, Teamer Footfalls runs for Bone Crusher Giant, for Brazen Borrower, for Shardless Agent, for Subtlety, Jujace the Mind Sculptor, for Crashing Footfalls, three Cryptic Command. Four Fire and Ice, four Force of Negation, and four Violent Outbursts. This is a deck full of specs. Uh, certainly benefits the vendor and speculator community if this deck keeps doing well. Yeah, it, this one was weird. It just you're right. It was I don't think Cliff and I talked about it at all. It was just gone that like two or three weeks that you were out of town, and now it's right back here. Uh, makes me think you had something to do with it. But the <laughs> um, the subtlety there, the subtleties are curious. I haven't checked their price in a while, so what are well, we looking at? Subtlety was being tested right out of the gates in the Teamer Football stacks, and every time I saw it on camera, I was unimpressed. I always felt like the card was underperforming, but clearly that's not the case broadly because it's still holding this four of slot in the deck. So, um, And I think part of it is that it pitches well to Force of Negation. Like That's the first, probably the way you use it most often. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you go the other way, pitching something else to the subtlety so that you can um, buy yourself some time and make a tempo play. Yeah, I mean, 25 bucks for the foil borderless copies, you know, with 65 vendors. There's clearly a strong supply there. Uh, but, I mean, 25 bucks for the foil borderless, it's not terrible uh, if this ends up being a reasonably relevant card. I think at least four of the five, if not all five, of these Elemental Incarnation foil borderless are likely to end up on our lists sooner or later. Um, because they are they are showcase, they are not exclusive to the collector booster boxes, so they deal, do still have a drip, drip, drip inbound uh, contributing to supply for the rest of the year. 
but they're pretty hard to pull out of a, a booster box or a set booster box compared to the CBs. So there is that. Yeah, they and they do all look pretty cool too, which is uh, in their favor. And in, and in this deck, they run two more of the elemental incarnations or uh, the evoke elementals, as it were. Two endurance and two fur- fury in this sideboard. Mm-hmm. So in third place, we've got Jund updated and top baiting. Haven't seen much of that lately either. Kind of thing you'd only expect uh, Reed Duke to be bringing to the table these days. But this is mostly what you would expect to see out of a Jund deck with uh, minor updates. Two Gris the Hunger Tide making the main deck alongside three Liliana the Veil and three Renin Six. Uh, ten instants including Assassin's Trophy, Fatal Push, Coligan's Command, Lightning Bolt, and Terminate. Just a good removal suite. Six discard spells and three Inquisition of Kozlek, three Thoughtseize. Just before the show, I was uh, sorting Japanese inbound Japanese pack packages that came in in just a massive package I had arrived last week. And those foil uh, Japanese art Strixhaven Inquisition of Kozleks are just stunners. Like <laughs> some of the best looking magic cards ever. They, they are so, so nice. It makes me want to build a deck around them. They are very, all that stuff is so cool looking. I do notice uh, that this is a interesting use of Ragavan, a little different, I want to say, than some of the other builds we've seen because the other other decks have tended to be fairly aggressive That where we see it for the most part, uh, either tempo-oriented or aggressive, whereas this is definitely more mid-range. You have eight Planeswalkers here with the split between Gris, Lily, and Ren. But because John uses uh, a fairly heavy discard and removal suite, your turn one Ragavan um, is now likely going to connect more often, which means uh, not only are you getting those treasure tokens, which uh, are, are sort of a temporary advantage, but the fact that he basically draws you a card is definitely meaningful. If you can land a turn one Ragavan and then pick off whatever they play as a blocker, um, it starts to give you the option of essentially drawing a card every turn where you can sneak them in. And Jund is, you know, loves those types of incremental advantages. So just another facet to Ragavan. Uh, certainly the card just seems to be better and better. Another one that I was <laughs> probably, I guess, ended up being too conservative on. Get real worried if you see it show up in the Jeskai control list. <laughs> I mean, because then, because then you know it's jump the shark. It, the, I mean, I feel like you're probably not that far off, right? If they're playing a control counter removal package, you know, they tend to every now and then they play one or two. You know, the snapcasters and control shells were pretty standard, right? Um, because they let you rebuy some of your spells. But if they decide that Ragavan is a more useful sort of utility creature because it lets you build up a mana advantage and it continues to draw you cards, I mean, that could end up being playable. Cer- cer- right. Certainly going up the range to see if it's up the up the banning list, I should say. Yeah, so far I'm comfortable with Ragavan in the format. It's definitely extremely strong, but kind of in the same way that Renin 6 is. Renin 6 is a very powerful magic card. It's a two-mana Planeswalker that has a lot of synergies in the format, but... It's never really gotten onto the table as a ban target because they continue to surround it with other cards of equal equivalent power level. I mean, the more Regavan level cards and Renin 6 level cards print, the le- less likely any one of them is going to get banned. Um, so yeah, I mean, Jund, third place. Then we got Blue Black Mill uh, continuing to top eight pretty much every week. 
And last week we were talking about flagging that Maddening Cacophony and Glimpsy Unthinkable were off the table. Well, this version ran it. Uh, four Maddening Cacophony, four Fractured Sanity, and four Tasha's Hideous Laughter. I'm still surprised to see Blue Black Mill preferring three mana uh, mill cards over two mana. But I guess the deal is that Fractured Sanity milling 14 cards and Tasha's Hideous Laughter often hitting about as many given the low-slung nature of the format is just so much more uh, powerful in terms of moving them to their end game that they've chosen to to drop the two the two casting cost stuff especially since they're running eight crabs and then you know flipping using the landfall triggers to get the mill plan rolling early you know you drop a crab turn two you can do any number of things like they're running three darkness in the main now so there's they're just running three fog mm-hmm straight up here that there's no other synergy with darkness it's just a fog um two crypt incursion in the main four archive trap another you know heavy hitting mill spell that hits for 13 when they try to go crack a fetch and then an into the story as a five mana draw four to reload if you get caught out it's a it's not that if you had given me an assignment i'm writing the thesis on blue black mill and modern i would not have come to these conclusions and clearly that means i haven't played enough of the deck it's, yeah it's interesting uh i mean the darkness is a time walk you tank that uh you sandbag that until the last possible minute and because you are essentially in a race and getting to blank your opponent's lethal attack for one mana is really good um, so it buys you an entire extra turn. So that's why those are good. The into the st- the into the story is interesting, but I'm not surprised because several of their spells here are instant speed, and if they find themselves in a position where they don't need them um, that particular turn, it gives them a chance to to reload a little bit uh, because it, the deck did have the problem of sometimes running just short. Yeah. Even with Visions of Beyond, you'd run, you'd run out of cards and being top decking to try to find your final mill card, and then you hit like land crab or something and don't get there right you're like 1.5 cards short of of, uh, killing your opponent and then you brick for three turns so it's definitely gotten better um i think my takeaway here is god damn those sketch fractured sanities are awful looking holy moly just (laughs) an abomination of a magic card they may as well be blanks yeah yeah yeah, not a fan of those. Um, Blue-red Merktide as opposed to blue-red Prowess in fifth. White-green Heliod combo back on the menu in both of the challenges this weekend as well, in sixth place in this case. Living End in seventh. And white-red Prowess, which I thought was the, you know, shunted distant cousin, country cousin to the blue-red Prowess and blue-red Merktides, made the top eight here. Four clever Lumamancer being the draw for the... Uh, the white side of the prowess deck now over in the july 17th modern challenge the day before we had teamer footfalls in first blue red murktide in second and then mardu midrange uh showed up in third which is basically like the black red dothy Voidwalker um ragavan decks that we've been seeing but in this case they included the white because they wanted access to three prismatic ending in the main as alongside two kaya's guile and then out of the sideboard, they wanted to have access to more Kai's Guidel, and it was ending, but also Lurus. And an ending. 
and a Loris. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, Loris is they could run just in true, black red because Loris doesn't need the white. But I guess and technically yeah, you I mean, get another color on EE too. Although I can't imagine they're going to that well too often. Sure, that's also true. So Mardu midrange in third, white green Heliod combo in fourth, food in fifth. Food's kind of fallen off the table a bit, uh, but still managed to make top eight here. And then four color bring to light in sixth. I mean, we've seen bring to light decks in modern for a better part of a year and a half, maybe two years. But this version has mm, a couple of tweaks, three chalice of the void in the main because there's so many one drops and, and zero drops that you need to deal with in the format right now. Um, for prismatic ending again. So you're just seeing like, you're seeing decks dip into, lean into white to get access to prismatic ending. Makes me feel better and better about the prospects for the fancy versions. Yeah, I, I suppose that prismatic ending is nice because it just gives you a one mana removal spell for dealing with um, Ragavan right off the bat. It doesn't cost you anything else and it scales up without being too painful in the meantime uh if you look at the top i'm just poking over here the top creatures in the format ragavan and dragon's rage channelars are one and two um and monastery swiss spears at 17 those are all one mana creatures so i mean hitting number one and number two for one mana with no upside for your opponent is a good place to be i'm now i'm 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 gonna say that uh my uh, being less than impressed with both Ragavan and Prismatic Ending was temper can can be tempered by the fact that like I didn't think I didn't think Prismatic Ending would be as good as it would be because Ragavan ended up being so good that Prismatic Ending got better just by virtue of being able to answer that effectively. And Darcy, I mean Dragon's Rage Channeler is also yeah. very prominent as you said so. The, um, all right, so then in seventh place, we have probably the most surprising list out of either top eight. This is a reanimator list, which you've seen, uh, I think, once uh, before in a top eight since the release of Modern Horizons 2. But this is a reanimator stone blade variant, right? Like, this is reanimator components. So you've got the new uh, unmarked grave to put stuff into your graveyard. And you've got the persist to take it back out and put it into play. And often you're looking for a Archon of Cruelty or an Ashen Rider or Grief sometimes. And you've got Sarah's Emissary in the main here. And then they've got the whole Stoneforge Mystic package. They've got three copies of Stoneforge Mystic. They've got a Batter Skull and a Cauldra Complete. And then in the sideboard, they've got uh, any more options on the... No, they, they don't actually run any more equipment in the sideboard. But they do run four Ephemerate as the combo with Grief and two Malachar Rebirth um, to do similar things. But can also, Malachar Rebirth is uh, an instant flip land from Zendikar Rising. If the creature dies, you return it to the battlefield tapped under its, its owner's control and you lose two life. So you can do that to flicker a Stoneforge Mystic if it's getting killed to use its ability again. You can do it with a uh, Priest of Fell Rites or one of the big creatures you manage to get into play. You it, can, there's a lot going on here. You can also do it to Grief. You sure. vote Grief and then uh, Malkyrie Rebirth it. So this, this almost feels like it is a Grief deck first and foremost because they are effectively running those Malkyrie Rebirths as Ephemerate 5 and 6. Seems to be kind of what they're shooting for here. So a lot of... Uh, 
interest in that activity. And I'm sure throwing stuff like Ashen Rider and Archon of Cruelty in the way of um, whatever it happens to be that's attacking and then ephemerating it or, you know, rebirthing it is not not an unpleasant experience. It does seem like there's a... I'm a little surprised at how few ways there are to kind of get the graveyard going. I mean, you have the four unmarked grave and the four persist, but there's not a lot of other tools to put the cards into your graveyard. And I mean, I guess with the three priests of fell rights, you have a, and the one and barrel rights, it's like eight tools main deck to get something from your graveyard into play. But it's not um, not as heavy as what I'm used to seeing in, in a reanimator decks where that is a strong plan A. And there's only one Liliana of the Veil in the deck. And then, of course, Grief can't target yourself. If it could, it would be even sexier in this deck. But well, that's Exile. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, that evokes Exile. Yeah, that would work. if That would be nice if it worked, but it doesn't. Right. So then there's uh, a Cave of the Frost Dragon over in the land base. That's the new creature land that uh, comes in untapped and makes white if you don't have two or more other lands and otherwise you can pay five to turn it into a three, four white dragon creature that flies. Mm-hmm. You know, the interest, um, cause I kind of look through this and think about it. The Stoneforge mystic is kind of interesting because you can, uh, I, I kind of wonder how much of this, the plan is, is you mystic for like batter skull. You put that into play and then you immediately ephemerate the mystic to go get Caldra complete untap put the cauldron complete into play and it feels like there's a pretty fast turn cycle where you can have go from just having stoneforge mystic into play into having both batter skull and cauldra in play and ready to attack and in fact if you stoneforge for batter skull pass end of your opponent's turn uh cheat in batter skull ephemerate stoneforge get cauldra compete complete untap put cauldron complete in which has haste you now have batter skull which is can now attack and cauldra which has haste so you can have both batter skull and cauldra attacking immediately on the following turn it's a pretty fast turnaround that's nine damage uh that's pretty that's going to be difficult to deal with as well as for uh life so an interesting interesting little package there you can really turn the tide on the battlefield quickly no idea if this is going to be the kind of thing that we're going to see in coming weeks, but certainly pretty interesting deck. Uh, we had black, red, mid-range f- finishing things off uh, with all the same components that we saw in the third place list, but minus the white portions. Uh, modern looks healthy. You got to be wealthy to be playing it, and you got to be wise to make your way through the gauntlet. So <laughs> uh, in reasonable shape, I think. And fast, it would seem. Does, All right, does, moving on. does not seem to be a lot of room to goof around in modern these days. It used no. to be a fun format uh, where you could really bring anything to the table, and as long as you kind of had a feel for it, you could at least you could at least get some wins in. I'm not sure you're getting away with that anymore. I would argue that to go down to tier two, it's a pretty wide format. But if you're serious about winning the tournament, the decks that we've just talked about are. <laughs> you're going to have trouble breaking through mm-hmm. with with your with your rando list like the reanimator blade great for you but that's you know only really that and the jeskai control list out of 16 decks are the only real surprises and if you go down to the top 16 of both these tournaments you'll see a whole bunch of stuff 
that didn't quite make it but was very close like hammer time was in ninth in one of the tournaments and and so on and so forth like all all the other usual suspects are still right there on the you know a half percentage point away from making the finals or whatever right right they're definitely uh, just just generally more punishing to all sorts of nonsense that i used to play my uh, God, what was it? Spellweaver Helix, Flame Jab, World Fire deck. Now that <laughs> that was a deck. All right, so moving on over to top paper movers of the week. Just a whole pile of foils. Very few non-foils making meaningful moves this week. We got Castle Vantress, the foil extended art out of Eldraine, going from thirty-five to sixty. Fairly certain we called this under 20, probably closer to 10 to 15 FEA, maybe 12 to 18 months ago. Uh, not super surprised to see it moving up alongside most of the rest of the castles that are good. Yep, they are all good. And I was looking at them earlier today, thinking about them, just thinking about castles. Thinking about castles. Uh, Chalice of the Void, M25, the foils there, 60 to 100. Um, just seems to be doing real well in modern. It's, you know, with one drops as strong as they are and two drops, it's equity is risen. And when was the last time we saw it? Was it the M25 copies that we're talking about right now? No, it was in, ti- it was in Time Spiral Remastered. And you can get foils of the... Uh, foils are at 156 on TCG Player with 51 listings. Uh, no major walls. Coming out of those time spiral boxes, again, you get one time spiral foil out of 121 options. So you need 100, you need, I think it's one out of every 27 packs. So you need something like 90 something boxes to find one of these. And uh, I'd be surprised if there's 90 boxes of time spiral remastered getting open per day worldwide right now. Oh, that seems extremely unlikely. <laughs> Dragonstorm on our list here, uh, 25 to 45 is part of the Tiamat decks over an EDH uh, from Scourge, the, the pack foils from Scourge here. Uh, I, I find that curious because Dragonstorm is a difficult deck, a difficult, difficult card to cast in a format like that. Uh, it's nine mana with Storm. Uh you know, you got to have a lot of tricks up your sleeve to build your storm count, but I guess it is powerful with like two or three triggers alone. The thing is, we haven't seen fresh foils of Dragonstorm since Modern Masters, which was almost a decade ago, uh, eight years. So without, without any fresh foil pressure, which would almost certainly tank this card the presence of tiamat being the most popular general coming out of the uh adventures in the forgotten realms set means i'm not too surprised to see these on the move hmm yeah i i don't know i just who seems like there's just not a lot of people who are interested in playing this card that's all but being old oldish is, is good enough i suppose it's 1300 decks on eda track that is not a lot but I'd be willing to bet that it's going to gain three to five hundred in the next two months off Tiamat. Yeah, I mean that's possible. Not 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 denying it, but there is certainly uh, a dearth of demand heading into Tiamat. We got to keep in mind that when we see thirteen hundred in EDH rec, that's not thirteen hundred people that are potential purchasers of the card. That's 
1300 times some fairly large multiplier for the total possible population and then you'd cut that back down by a pretty steep slash against people that are willing to pay for a premium version of the card of course of course all right, so we have Oval Chase Daredevil out of the food decks, foils from Double Masters, which I'm sure many people just threw into their bulk. Like, if you have if you have VIP packs you cracked and then threw the crappy cards aside, you for sure have Oval Chase Daredevil sitting around that you should go pull out. Um, 250 to 450 on the back of the food decks, needing four of them all the time. Steel Shaper's Gift out of Fifth Dawn foils from 70-ish to about 130, 80% gains. Uh, it's the original printing, played constantly in Hammer Time. And then we've got Flagstones of Trocare, original printing, uh, another card that showed up in Time Spiral Remastered. And in the original Time Spiral, those foils have gone from 24 to 58. Goes to show how printing a fresh premium version of a card can often slingshot whatever the oldest slash best version is just on the basis of turning people's heads in the direction of the card in question. Yeah. Hey, remember this is here? Like there's other copies as well. Yeah, and and there's a cooler one you can get if you're so inclined. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna Wan, the Ruin Sage at a World Wake foils from five to fourteen. I know I've got a couple of these sitting around. We got double Innistrad sets coming this fall. One of them is very much about vampires. The other one seems very much about werewolves. So the vampire one is going to kick off a whole bunch of vampire specs. In fact, multiple of the cards recommended to us by Pro Traders for the Pro Trader selection of the week were vampire related. Yeah, Anna Wan is um, an interesting choice here. Interesting to see. Uh, he's only got two printings, World Wake and Commander 2017. So not a significant supply there. Also no good versions for that matter. Um, looks like there's about... They're down to 23 listings for just World Wake pack copies. Um, MTG Mint has seven. A uh, guy apparently down the street from me in Rochester has 11. Uh, but that's not a lot of copies, right, for a card... World Wake is old. It's not like that old. It's not old bordered. And those are just normal copies. Those are not foils. By the way, did you notice this bug on TCG Player where you're on a card, then you click the all versions of this card, and then it pulls it up, but then like immediately just clears your search and shows you like all of their products. But then you have to go back and go forward again, and then it's fixed. Yep. Okay, so it's not just like me and this. No, you're not crazy. That's been happening to me for a couple weeks now. Okay. Uh, Also only 20 listings for just, again, normal pack copies of the Commander 2017 version of this card with um, no one really having a deep supply. So honestly, without a reprint, this could dry up. I mean, you're looking at, what, 60, 70 copies of this card tops on tcg near mint tcg player that's not a lot if if you know a bunch of people go back to the vampire well now there are a good number of anons floating out there in bulk ish boxes but if you're picking these up for you know a dollar two dollars yeah, it might work out for you if these get up to the six or seven and you're ready to sell into the hype when it happens these could very easily be a non-foil reprint in the commander deck yeah yeah but again, no foils. So I would expect foils to spike up 20 to 30 if that's the case. Yeah, the foils are certainly pretty well positioned in that regard. Now, it could show up in some kind of secret layer showcase of past Innistrad cards. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, I would say it would be a weird choice. It could be the, like, the fifth card 
Like we're giving you I, two or three good cars, and then fifth fifth down the line is Anawan, just because we have to fill it out. Well, actually, it would, that doesn't work if it's Innistrad themed, because this is from Zendikar. It only works if it's vampire themed. Yeah, yeah. Which they could do, right? Like that's they could. Just you it. could see a secret layer like vampire release and a werewolf release. That makes perfect sense. I don't know. There's a uh, a secret layer chance of everything all the time, so it's just like <laughs> eh, sure, whatever. That information exists. Sylvan scrying foils and mir- Mirrodin, the original foils. It's an uncommon, but still we're seeing it dry up. It's been. 20 years or so since Mirrodin. 14 to 44, original printing, it's a massive EDH card, etc., etc. Kataki's War, War is Wage, kind of similar era. Saviors of Kamigawa, foils 20 to 80, it's original printing, sees modern sideboard use. There's been increasing need for it lately uh, against the artifact heavy decks. And then, biggest mover of the week. This one blowing my mind. Foil Mantis Riders were for sure a pick on this cast way back down the road. Here they go, eight to forty dollars plus, and there's basically one copy at forty-two bucks left on TCG Player. This thing hasn't been reprinted since it was first printed in what, 2014, 2015? Sure. And so five or six year old single printing foil rare that I I have trouble seeing wizards include in any almost anything anywhere. Because it's not an EDH card, it really just gets played in humans and modern. It specifically references con- uh, Tarkir lore, and it's three colors. So this is not easy to print, even in things like Secret Layers, because it's such a low priority in that circumstance. Yeah, it's a weird it's card, a, and it's a it's a you can't put it into a Commander Legends set. Unlikely to make the cut for like Modern Horizons three, and that could be years off. These foils could be could stay in this pricey sub hundred but if you really want them you got to pay for them anywhere from 35 to 70 dollar range pretty easily here now because there's just there's just whatever speculators have tucked away somewhere and I, I haven't managed to find my copies yet but i'm certain i have some maybe in a pioneer box yeah i don't know if i have any of these or not and eh, whatever i i would expect that we will not see another foil mantis rider for a long time if I find them, I'm going to slap them up at like $100 a playset and dare the market to to confirm these anything close to these prices. Yeah, I mean, if they started at $8.25 each, doesn't seem wild. All right, so moving on along to top Magic Online movers of the week. Mostly a bunch of standard stuff. Garrick Unleashed out of M21. Going from... Ah, excuse me. Going from 0.42 ticks to one tick or so on the back of mono green standard play across a couple of different versions of the list. Hall of Storm Giants out of um, Adventures of the Forgotten Realms, going from 0.29 ticks to 0.74, 155% gains because it's seeing play in both blue red and blue black standard decks. That's another one of the creature lands. Bard class. Uh, also out of the D&D set, going from 0.57 ticks to 2.9. It doesn't look like it's seeing all that much play in standard. I think it's mostly coming from commander, people using it to cast their on-color commanders that share green-red that much more efficiently. Um, But it's possible that there was a standard deck I didn't flag that that spiked a tournament this weekend. Yeah, bard classes, I mean, we talked about all the classes. They're fascinating. This is, yeah, the one that makes them legendary. Oh, this is... um... This is that modern deck. Did you say Which one? The, the Bard class is that modern deck that plays all legendary creatures that are one or two mana that cost red or green. 
Uh, don't think I've seen that one. There was, I mean, I'm not going to tell you this was good, but that's what it does. And let me see if I can find it here. Because I do remember seeing this. Because I've seen, I have seen a standard deck that's that's running it, but I haven't seen it uh, in modern, I don't think. I'm fairly confident it was modern. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say a streamer played it. Okay, I mean, that sounds totally possible. But it, but it, it was kind of nifty. Or was it Pioneer? It was kind of <laughs> nifty because it used, um, like it had Burning Tree Emissary. And then it had uh, other legendary. I see, I think I saw a picture of it on Twitter. So like, I have no way to search for this thing. And But that's what it was. And it actually was kind of nifty looking. Definitely a very rough pass, but a clever use of the card. All right. So wrapping up this list, we've got uh, the top and... Gem Razor out of Ikoria going from 0.09 ticks to 0.51 also on the back of Heavy Play in the Mono Green Standard list. 450% gains and that's the kind of thing where I mean if you've got a if you drafted a bunch of Ikoria you probably got some Gem Razor sitting around you may as well go get yourself a cup of coffee by cashing them in. <laughs> something, to, uh, something to be noticed here that all of the uh, MTGO movers we talk about are measured in how many cups of coffee it buys you. <laughs> Well, right now the big play is they just announced that Modern Horizons 2 drafts, which they had previously shut down, are coming back to Magic Online. So Ragavan, as of yesterday, was up to 140 ticks. And as of right now, according to GoatBots, Ragavan is down to 105, which is 10 tickets lower than it was an hour ago when I was first prepping this. Hmm. So the game is on for shorting Ragavans, that's for sure. <laughs> And anybody who shorted on the news probably got out around 130 to 135 ticks. Mm. They're already up 25 ticks a copy and falling fast. And the the drafts don't even start till tomorrow. Wow. Wow. That's kind of funny. So people could be shorting for like 60 or 70 ticks a Ragavan if they get lucky here. Well, there you go. Good, good luck. Good luck. Uh, by the time you hear this, it'll be too late, but good luck. Um, by the way, uh, just announced, or I guess data mined while we were recording, but there's a banned and restricted announcement tomorrow. Yep. We saw, we saw that had that er pegged earlier in the discord. Oh, a little earlier this afternoon, probably mm -hmm. historic, I suppose. Right. Yeah. We figured something like brainstorm and historic and something out of popper storm. Mm. But there's, there's still, there's been talk that Mitra's Bobble is too prevalent. You know, people were complaining about Urza Saga, but we didn't see any saw Urza Saga in those top eights we were just looking at, right? Uh, I wasn't looking closely. Nothing jumped out at me. My concern uh, about Mitra's Bobble is that I don't recall there being a heavy overlap between Bobble and Ragavan decks. I mean, I guess those, well, no, those, there prowess, is. those prowess decks all no, right, don't they? Yeah, and the black the black red decks often do as well. Okay, so I mean maybe maybe that takes more wind out of his sails than not. I, I'm not convinced that Bobble needs a ban. Like I think I think it straight up is unnecessary in the format, and I think the format's fine without it. All it does is allow you to shrink decks, and and make your decks artificially efficient. Mm -hmm. That said, I, I also don't think the format is broken around it, and I don't think the decks that don't run Bobble are at a. a a noticeable disadvantage to the decks that do. Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, certainly having Luris in the format makes it a lot better. Um, so you can you can make arguments that com- the companions being absent in the format might be enough to just to put Bobble back into the reasonable portion of the shelf. Yeah, maybe. Um, okay. Segment three cards to watch. You want to kick us off here? It feels early to be talking about Modern Horizons 2 specs, but I do believe that we are pretty close to peak supply um, and that for some cards it might be behind us. It's important to go back and read either our article or any other article you can find that diligently details what you can find where and what the drop rates are for the various Modern Horizons 2 products because having that information locked and loaded really helps you decide what to target. But there are other ways to go about drawing some comparisons that I think are also relevant. Case in point, Yavamaya Cradle of Growth Foil Extended Art. It is assumed that the Old Border Foils are the go-to's for any of the cards that have both options. But the reality is the old border foils can be found <coughs> at almost exactly the same drop rate um, for Yavimaya and some of the other cards that are in a similar boat. And if you look at Yavimaya's total listings, old border foils is at 129 listings on uh, TCG, whereas the regular uh sorry the foil extended art version of the card was at let me just see i bought a few this afternoon so i probably changed the math slightly at 99 listings and the foil extended arts are at 20 bucks or so and the old border foils are at 25 i think both are very reasonable targets because anything under 100 listings during peak supply is already headed in the right direction but here's the thing the old border foil, sorry, the uh, borderless foil box topper of Urborg, Tomb of Yogmoth, is currently sitting at $240. So roughly 10 times the price of Yavimaya Cradle of Growth, and they are very comparable cards because they are basically the same card in two different colors. And the even if you believe the old border foil version is the ultimately the most desirable, I would counter that in terms of on-table presentation, subtracting the nostalgia factor, the foil extended arts look better. They present better because they they show off more art. They, they feel less constricted, etc. But you don't even need to agree on that point. You just have to recognize that there's no way Urborg has a 10 times multiplier over, Yog, over Yavimaya say, one to three years out. That gap has to narrow very considerably. And I would imagine that both Old Border Foil and Foil Extended Art Yavimayas are going to end up 60 to 80, something like that, within 12 to 14 months. So I'll go ahead on record and say that my call here is to pick up the Foil Extended Arts at 20 and exit above 40 and do it within 12 to 16 months. Hmm. Well... When I referenced the friction at the top of the episode, it was because Cliff had talked about Modern Horizons 2 a bit, and I was reluctant to dip my toes into that pool at this point in time. The Modern Horizon 1 reprints excluded, since those were CB exclusive. Um, But we didn't talk about extended arts uh, at that time. They hadn't come up. 
The foil extended art choice here is, I think, a reasonable uh, alternative. And while I have, certainly have an affinity for the retro frames, and for the most part, I think the enfranchised player is probably likely to prefer retro. I mean, like, if the if you're enfranchised, you've probably been playing longer. If you've been playing longer, you probably like have a better chance of liking the old border cards than a newer player. So, and we're also assuming the enfranchised player is the type of player most likely to buy these type of things. So there's a lot of assumptions in there, all of which could be incorrect. These are just educated guesses. So it makes sense that you would expect that type of car to sell better to, like, the type of person this, to buy the most premium version of the card is also more likely to be the type of person to like the retro frame. Probably-ish? Probably-ish. <laughs> uh, now, I think you mentioned this, but um, clarify for me. It is the extended art rares are less common than the retros, right? Because they're exclusive to the collector boosters. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's what I remembered that. I was just verifying you, there wasn't anything you, else there. Yeah, you can pull an old border foil out of a set booster box, but your odds on any given rare or mythic are real low. Okay. And so like a foil, an old border foil scalding turn, people say, oh, those are going to come out of set booster boxes all year. Yeah, they are. But at like a, a way, way lower rate than they come out of the collector booster boxes. Yeah. So okay, so they are possible. But they're they're quite rare. So well, it, I mean, ex- it explains right off the top why we see that the foil extended art crate uh, Yavamayas are already at thirty percent lower inventory than the old border foils. Even if even if the old border foils are five bucks more, there's less of the foil extended arts. So wh- whatever segment of the population prefers them, and they are selling. You can one of the this is great now that TCG shows us recent sales without being a vendor. Because we can see that the card in question sells. So if you want to debate with yourself, yeah, but like, why focus on extended art? That's going to be the stepchild and everybody's going to focus on the other one. Well, that's, you can say that all you want, but the foils have sold recently at $21, $25, $21, $21, $21, and all in the last couple of days. So you can apply that rate of decay to the inventory and then take some broad swipe at a replenishment rate. Let's say that every week... You're going to sell five copies of this on TCG Player, and someone's going to add two copies. You're still going to lose three copies a week until it drains into an upward curve on price. Yeah. Um, I I guess where I was going with that is roughly my assumption is that the retro frames would be more popular amongst the premium seekers, but that that's not necessarily true. And also, um, if there is a meaningful supply difference between them, that could also have quite an impact. Uh, and I, I don't disagree that for someone, I think you're right, for someone who's not a longtime player, um, they probably will like the extended art version more. I don't think it's, I mean, the extended art version of the, yeah, I mean, in general, I think Yabamaya Cradle of Growth's art is, is fine. Um, it's not terrible, but like you kind of have this big dark blob right in the front right corner. It's not striking. Uh, so the, the but the, but it, regardless, the extended art probably is generally preferable for, for anyone who's not, you know, 
longtime player. I guess where I'm going with this is I think that the extended art foils are probably a very reasonable and likely prudent alternative to the retro foils, especially where the price is better. Because you you know you know they're going to be rare with most of the inventory already here, um, and will likely have slightly broader appeal. And with prices at twenty dollars, that's you're not in the territory of um, you don't have to be real old guard or real deep into the game to pay twenty bucks for this card. A two hundred fifty dollar foil, yeah, your market's small. There's not a lot of people you're speaking to with that card. But at twenty bucks a foil, a lot of people will buy these, which definitely helps the extended art over the retro frame. It looks like hundred near mint foils for the extended art and hundred and thirty for the retro. So there's even lower on the EA. And yeah, as uh, I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, you say it, but like sometimes I have to just look and it looks like I see 35 retrofoils with a gaming company. Yeah. So while I have been cooler on the Modern Horizons 2 stuff to date, just because I'm, I'm sort of waiting, uh, we are probably getting very, very close to the floor on this already. And I think the foil extended arts are likely a better tack than the retros at this point in time. Few other points of information that are relevant here. One, we were just looking above at Castle Vantress foil extender going from thirty-five to sixty. That's out of a standard set out of a hundred-dollar booster box. Keep in mind these are two hundred and sixty dollars, two hundred forty, two hundred thirty, two twenty-five. If you got it through us, booster boxes. So the cost basis is twice what it was on uh, on regular boxes. And then when we're talking about foil extended arts. Comparing, say, Eldraine collector booster boxes to Modern Horizons 2, Modern Horizons 2 was like 150% the, the, the price. So just there, you know, if you compare the card, you have a Maya Cradle of Growth in terms of how many decks it's going to fit into versus Castle Vantress, I would argue Yavimaya is probably going to have a broader demand profile overall. And so to say it's going to go to 60 in two years is probably pretty reasonable. And given the difference in the cost basis, even higher is entirely possible and keep in mind this card started real high like these were over a hundred dollars during pre-order season mm -hmm. so it's already down like 80 percent now it's also worth flagging that there was amazing deals on this and other cards in japan early on that japan the japanese vendors didn't seem to respect but in europe there aren't any excellent deals to be had on yavimaya foil extended arts or or old borders in fact it's going to cost you 10 to 25 percent more in europe um, partially because they didn't get as many collector booster boxes as they, as they were supposed to. Side note, they're getting some soon, but um, there's no hot deals to be had to where arbitrage is going to flow into TCG player from that angle. And it's also worth flagging that this isn't just some random card that might end up good. This is the second most popular EDH card from the set with already 4370 decks registered with the card, which means... Tens of thousands of people are playing with it. 13% of all green decks are including the card currently. Those are real good stats. So, looks like a solid pick. I see that the card, only card with more raw copies is Esper Sentinel. Exactly. One of my other high high priority selections from the set. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, not, uh, not a terrible way to go on either of them. I was putting aside the 30 copies I picked up early on on Esper Sentinel. <laughs> um, that we got it less than $10. Just put them in a little box and <laughs> put them in the look at this in a year pile. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's probably for the better. I don't think you're getting no reprints before that. All right. Talk to me about your first pick. Uh, these two, I'm going to do them both at the same time because they're very similar. Uh, uh, these feel like real low-hanging fruit, but I'm not going to feel ashamed about that. But um, I stumbled upon Graven Cairns out of Zendik- the Zendikar Expedition for Graven Cairns. I don't even remember why I looked at the card, but there are like two near mint copies of that left. And it looks like the price has ticked up a little bit in the last couple days. Um, I don't know if there was a demand for this card that I missed, that we missed. Um, but definitely inventory has moved on that recently. Prices started to move. It could very well just be people going back to some of the expeditions and trying to clean out lower supply. It's quite possible. Not going to say that that's not the case, but it doesn't really matter. People are going to do it. The prices are going to move. Um, Graven Cairns and Cascade Bluffs are both basically gone. Um, there's like one or two copies, three copies of them. The prices are available. Prices are up above where they were. So if you can find any cheap ones, good luck. Um, but they didn't touch, as it does not appear, that they touched Twilight Mire and Rugged Prairie, two of the other uh, filter lands. Um, both of them are in just about 15,000 EDH rec decks. Um, they're very useful lands in EDH, allowing you to filter. Um, not They're not like major staple lands, but they still have solid play patterns. And they're, they're 35 and 30 for Twilight Mire and Rugged Prairie, respectively, for the Zen- original Zenikar expeditions. Um, so given what I'm seeing on Graven Cairns and Cascade Bluffs, I think you snagged these at 3035. There's nine copies of Twilight Mire and 15 of Rugged Prairie. Uh, you just snag them, hang out for a little while. You'll get probably 50, 60, 70, 80 bucks for them. And I don't know, late this year, middle of next year, probably because with inventory like this, you do not, you need what, like five people to each want a copy. And now the price has doubled. So um, real low supply uh, on a fairly old, the original expedition here, um, but I would be very shocked if you did not, you know, double your money basically picking these up at 30 and 35. There are still some copies in Europe in the 30 to $35 range, but the ramp's pretty steep. Over in Japan on Hiroyuya, for instance, they have one copy listed at 4,800 yen, which is about $45. So yeah, this looks pretty solid. I mean, it's it's been a l- enough time now, and even for the people that argue, oh, extra versions of... Well, there's no extra versions here. There's one premium version. The rest are all pack foils. It was reprinted as early as a year ago in Double Masters, but they didn't get a premium treatment there. It wasn't part of the VIP box toppers. It only got foil uh, rear treatment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and Sunken Ruins is already $80. So there you go. Most It looks like most of these are high like six, at least 60. I think Twilight Mire and Rugged Prairie might be the only two floating down at 30 and 35. And I mean, they're not like $10 less than the other ones. They're half the price. So that's and the tempting. thing is, the thing is, Wizards spent basically an entire year reprinting enemy fetches. And great, now they've done that, but they've consequently fallen way behind on any other dual land cycles that might need a reprint. So there's six, seven, eight options in terms of what dual land cycles we'll see reprinted in the next few years. And that's alongside, there's always thought they're, they're going to continue to print new land cycles as well. So premium Twilight Mire, who knows when that might show up. Mm-hmm. Could be could be this year, could be 10 years from now. Uh, yeah, I, uh, all of those, all the lands are just like, who knows? Who knows when you'll manage to see them? 
All right. My next one is another MH2 selection. Uh, if you if you liked the 4300 uh, decks reported for Yavimaya, you'll certainly be into the 32,000 decks reported, 11% of all black decks for Cabal Coffers. And that can consider that those are numbers coming from uh, an era where this card was extremely pricey. Um, you know, normal Cabal Coffers are down under, I think, 25 bucks now for the basic copy out of Modern Horizons 2. Let me just make sure I'm not eating my words, but I believe that's true. $25 market price on TCG Player for Cabal Coffers right now, and the Borderless copy is at $36, but the Foil Borderless is currently at about $70 to $72. You might be able to get them on Facebook closer to $65. Europe, again, is not uh, any cheaper because of their supply issues. This is going to be a future, again, if we compare to the Urborg box topper in the 240 range, there's no way the Cabal Coffers Borderless Showcase foil doesn't end up in the 150 to 250 range within a couple of years. So I'm calling this 16 months to go, basically double from 70 to 140. Okay. Uh, I don't have a lot to say because if you tune into our episode two weeks ago, Cliff and I talked about this is a non-foil. He wanted... He might have actually sure. been talking about just no, he, the pack yeah, he copy. Was on, he, he was on non, I think just non-foil regular 28 to 50, he said. Yeah. So, which is I, I, virtually every version of Cabal Coffers is appealing here in some capacity or the other. He went on the low end and said, you know, get the cheapest copy you can and just let those go. You're saying go get the best copy here. Um, yeah, I don't, I think this is probably the most, the premium version uh, but can't argue with either one of those. I think they're both they're both good good shots. Cabal coffers across the board are all good picks. So, I, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of how popular this card is. Well, and the reason that I would go for the foil, Cliff looks at the non foils and thinks to himself, "Well, these have are going to have the higher multiplier." But the thing is that the non foil listings currently uh, on TCG is two hundred and six. Whereas the foil borderless copies is down under 100 already. So I tend to gravitate 87 listings currently and no major walls. Like nobody's got more than three copies listed. There's no gaming company 30, 30 unit wall here sitting around uh, getting in your way. I think all of the above, it's very similar as with Yavimaya Cradle of Growth. They're all going to uh, do pretty well. But I like to handle higher value cards in lesser numbers wherever possible. And I'm very impressed with what these foils look like. I opened a couple of them out of Modern Horizons 2 collector booster boxes myself this weekend. And both the you know in Japanese and German. And they are stunners. Like the, the art looks amazing in foil. Um, I expect these to be very popular over time. Seems like a no-brainer to me. And I don't know if this is going to you know retreat down into the $60 range. These are not limited to the collector booster boxes. They are showcase borderless, so they are available in set booster boxes and, and draft booster boxes at, again, very low drop rates. Like, you'd be lucky to see one in a case, um, you know, let alone a box. Mm-hmm. But there will still be an inflow on them throughout the year. That said, I, uh, I'd probably be willing to wait on the regulars for a little bit and see if they get a little lower. These I'm willing to dip my toe in at around 70 and then check back in in a couple of weeks. And if it's pushing up over 80, I'll go ahead and buy some more. If it's dropping into the 60s, I might wait a little while and try to dollar cost average lower. 
Well, I basically told him the same thing because it was a Modern Horizons 2 card. And I said, yeah, you could probably wait and see if these sneak down a little further. But realistically, you're not going to get that much cheaper than they currently are. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're buying at 38 and they drop to 35 or 33, you're still going to be fine when they're at 55 or 60. Uh, I haven't, you know, I'm not looking at the pricing history on, on these foil borderless shark shark foil borderless copies. Um, I'm not exactly clear if it's pointed up or down or how the inventory has been turning, but I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because we're talking about probably only five ish percent possible price changes, 10% tops. And we know that you're shooting for basically a hundred percent increase in the next year and a half or so. Um, so that little bit doesn't matter too much if you just want to get in and, and be settled. Six copies sold on TCG Player in foil in the last two days. So if we apply that to the current listings with, say, a refresh, if it's two copies, say it's something like seven copies a week with a refresh rate of three, you're still dropping four copies a week for the rest of the year. 50, year, 50 weeks later, you should be down 200 copies and out of stock. Now, yeah. that's you're not going to have a, a linear progression like that because as you know Innistrad comes onto the table and people shift their attentions elsewhere you should see other cards selling have a lower sales velocity but even if i think that that four is going to stay you know four copies a week net outflow for say six weeks and then drop to two for six weeks and then drop to one on the on the go forward still wouldn't take that long to drop to drain yourself up the curve when you've only got 87 listings to begin with yeah, you definitely, you're you're making progress there. Um, I'm actually a little surprised at how many foil copies of that have sold in the last four days. I would not have put it that high. Two days. Two, yeah, two days. Yeah, four, was it six copies in two days? Actually quite surprising that it would move that much, yeah. um, to be honest. But uh, yeah, All right. decent, decent choice, decent choice. So you've got a cousin selection for Twilight Mire? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, Rugged Prairie and Twilight Mired, I, I kind of talked about together there. They were just lumped in because of the same thing. Um, so I'm just going to follow off with my last pick, which is uh, the Zerta, the Dawn Waker. Uh, this is one of the other companions. This is the red-white one that uh, each the restriction is each permanent in your starting deck has an activated ability. Uh, it's big in Kenrith, uh, but it's useful in other places as well. Um and it has essentially the training grounds rules text on it. Uh, you can pick up the foils here for about 14 bucks on these. It's in about 5,000 EDH direct decks. You see it in 60 card play a little bit here and there as well. This is not like a, a remarkable card, I would say. I mean, Loris and Yorion are definitely way out ahead as companions, but their foil prices are like 70 or 80 or some nonsense, maybe 50 or 60 for Yorions. Um, I think Zerta is going to continue to show up in EDH and, and do okay. So and I, there are, let me just double check here, 21 vendors on TCG with foil copies. Nobody is particularly deep. So it's not like there are 50 or 60 or 70 um, copies that you're burning through here on TCG player. It's fairly shallow. Uh, so this is a, a slightly slower burn uh, for sure. But, you know, if you're picking these up at like, 14-ish dollars, you know, I think you can sell these at 30 and probably a year-ish maybe, possibly slightly longer than that. But, I mean, short of a secret layer, you're not going to see these again. Not going <laughs> to see these again short of a secret layer. So, well, and, these are, and these are contentious to include anywhere because uh, they, can't, they can't be played in EDH effectively 
uh, as in the, as companions. So and Lutri is banned out of the format period in EDH. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, I think the Zerda is played in Kenrith like as part of the main. Yeah, uh, but which is it's just still fine. I mean, the, having training grounds on a creature um it's still useful i just you know the, the companions in general i think are on foils are, are reasonably solid pickups at low prices because you're just, it's just gonna be forever before we see them again most likely most likely so again slower burn a little less priority but uh i don't think you'll be upset this one's a little weird because Luris is at 70 with 28 listings uh for foil near mint uh, extended art Yorion is only at 25. That's a buy for sure, in case anybody was wondering. Oh, Yorion's only um, 25. I didn't see that. I was looking at a different page, so it didn't pop up. There's only a double handful of them, and the ramp's pretty steep over 30. But yeah, you can still get them at 25. Only 48 listings there. Zerda may well have been targeted recently because Zerda's down to 21 listings. That is So Zerda being at $13 but 21 listings, you know what that tells me? That says somebody bought a lot of copies at once. That is very surprising that Yorion would be at 48 listings. I mean, I didn't look up Yorion and Luris because I knew that they were ahead of where I wanted to be when looking at Zerda. Hmm. Well, and we can look at the recent sales. We've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Got like 13 copies of this that sold in the last since July 8th in foil. So it's not like somebody grabbed 40 at once or anything, but this one has been draining on the back of some of the commanders recently that are into this ability. Um, what was the one from the equipment focused one? Osgear. Osgear, yeah. Yorian's at four near mint foils uh, since July 10th, so 10 days. So yeah. not really burning up a pace over there. Hmm. Benzerta was it? I moved off my page. So yeah, Zerta is in thirty-four percent of Ozgear decks. Okay, so that alone is six or seven hundred copies worth of demand, and even if ten percent of those are foils, that sixty or seven co- seventy copies sold, and that's just without applying any kind of multiplier up off of the EDH Rex stats. Yeah, I mean, I bumped into it on the. Um... Kenrith page, but the Osgear is a fair point. So, I mean, there you go. I mean, Osgear has been doing pretty well, and fourteen dollars is still quite cheap. You know, you look at Yorion at twenty-five. Uh, you know, I don't think Osgear is going to be, uh, you know, a top five commander six months from now. But people are still going to be building it piecemeal here and there, and no one's going to get rid of their copies. So, kind of stand by my thought process. My final selection of the week is Heliod Suncrown Showcase Foils. And I, I felt like that we would have called this last spring, but didn't seem like it. I meant like spring of 2020, not 21, um, but I couldn't find it anywhere in our notes. Um, 25 to 45 here seems very likely to, to go down as the white-green Heliod combo decks are still a force in modern. We saw it in the top eights again this week. It's also in 9,300 decks on EDH Rec, which is 5% of all white decks. And we're down to 45 near-mint TCG listings with no major walls. Um, there is a secret layer version, which is also a reasonable target. But <laughs> Secret Layer version has some pretty quirky art that I don't think is going to necessarily appeal to your average modern player. 
Yeah, that secret layer art was some of the worst they've put out. Just it was it was a very specific kind of nineteen thirties, nineteen forties animation style, but with a cutesy Valentine's theme, and I don't think it really applies to Heliod. Um, yeah, I this is this I have to imagine this didn't sell well, but also no one's gonna want to buy it either. Well, I mean, people, I mean, we can look at that, right? The great thing about TCG right now is we can kind of see how, how these things are doing. And with Heliod in particular... I would uh, rather just make these broad sweeping statements <laughs> and not verify them. So we can see this how many instant sales... Instant speed fact-checking while recording is a little unpleasant. One, two, three, four. Something like eight copies since July 13th in foil. On which the is, secret layers or the on the showcase? secret layers on the secret layers. God, who are which is, these people? Which is a pretty reasonable rate of decay, right? And if we look over at the showcase, we're looking at one, two, three, four, five. So a little less actually than there is on the secret layers. Um, I would argue that the star starry sky art. Uh, direction associated with the enchantment creatures in Theros is actually some of the strongest art direction Magic's ever had um, in terms of establishing unique look and feel and lore that is completely different than anything else. Um, That said, take your pick. If you like the other art, the stats seem to hold up that you could go for either or of these. Bottom line is, because it got... It's still in standard currently, so technically still in print... Um, and also has a secret layer from this year. Very unlikely that you're going to see more Heliod anytime soon. Um, and it's a mythic. It's played as a four of in the combo deck in modern and has great stats in EDH. So I think to, to say that a foil version of the mythic would get up close to, you know, 45 or 50 in say six to 12 months seems very reasonable. Yeah. There's, so there's a couple data points here. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with you that the, showcase version certainly looks cooler um you have 44 vendors here one guy has some stock he's got 20 uh but for the most part other than that it's ones and twosies across 44 listings so you're looking at something like uh 65 like 75 ish copies the um secret layer version only 30 vendors but i see an eight a 31, a 16, a right. 16, 43, 30, 28, like... Total, co- total copies is higher for, this, e- for the secret m- layer. Yeah, much higher. Clearly, these are stores who bought a bunch of secret layers and are um, just out in the single. So even though there's a fewer vendors, there looks like there might be three times as many copies of the secret layer. So even if they're selling a little quicker, that's still a lot more inventory to burn through. Yep. Uh, yeah, is... You know, we can look at the rate of the sales and the secret layer version certainly seems appealing in that regard, but that's a lot of inventory and you have to imagine the showcase version is generally going to be preferable. Like you you buy the showcase version hoping that it is preferable because you can't live in a world where people <laughs> like the secret layer version more. I don't like, I'm not repelled by the secret layer version i think it's fine it just doesn't do anything it doesn't uh touch like interact with my art sensibilities it's, in any specific way it's whereas not, i do whereas i do think the constellation art is stately 
it's it's handsome and i think the black the white on black with the you know silver uh starry sky details is overall a nice look that i would prefer to present on the table yeah i mean the secret layer is no ron spencer it's not that bad but uh it is at, at best a very niche art style whereas the enchantment frame constellation setup is uh like you said a little more handsome so uh well i like the borderless style i have to opt for the more reasonable looking showcase version here by the uh, way i just i just noticed that vantress that we flagged up above was your selection the last week i was gone oh was it 28 to 55 yeah wait so the last week you were gone yep episode 279 uh so i that was oh yeah it was wasn't it so that's a little win for you that you didn't notice <laughs> i saw you put the bull tax on it but i didn't think much of it so moving right along we've got our pro trader selection of the week uh user malu m-l-u-u hall of heliod's generosity old border foil uh, at a modern horizons 2 the argument here is that you can currently get these for five bucks on tcg player and card kingdom who is shy on quite a lot of modern horizons 2 cards is offering five dollars on these foils cash not credit so you're cash backed with zero risk at present 74 tcg listings total which is you know 20 to 60 lower than a lot of the other uh, similar rarity options. There's no major walls. It's in 25,000 decks on EDH rec and 10% of all white decks. Hmm. So these are, you can buy the old border foils for $5. Five bucks. And Card Kingdom is paying $5 cash. Correct. Well, uh, once again, we are in a situation where it's just like, yep. <laughs> yep can't argue with that can't argue with that these are cool cards and this is uh what do we say twenty five thousand eda direct decks yeah i mean i i think i'd probably want to sit on them for a while i wouldn't be in like a rush obviously but you know even if you if you man if you could wait two years probably be pretty nice one annoying thing that might happen here when you try to buy some of these up is you're going to get shipped some etched copies <laughs> uh and the etched lands are especially odd. Um, I think they, I, personally, I think they look fine. Like, I don't think they're offensive. I just think they're suboptimal. But you definitely, definitely going to want to crack your mail the day it comes in and make sure you got the right stuff when you put your order in. Again, almost like nobody has more than three, three copies of this listed until you get to $7. That guy's got six. There's another guy at $7.25, five copies. But th- this looks like inventory that is going to dry up. And, and this is a just ubiquitous in enchantment-focused decks card. It utility land that if you your deck cares about enchantments, you are and you're in white, you're definitely running this card because it's just too obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty obvious inclusion for all sorts of strategies. And given that it's a Modern Horizons 1 reprint from two years ago that's now gotten a second and third printings via the Old Border Foils and etched, and as Cliff likes to point out, the Old Border Foil reprints from Modern Horizons 1 are only available in the collector boosters, we're probably pretty close to peak demand. I mean, peak supply. And I think it's safe to go in on, say, four or eight copies of this and be totally happy if you can get in anywhere near five bucks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think I, I I did scroll through a lot of the old border foil reprints, and I had picked one or two in pa- the last several weeks. And there are a bunch more that I looked at and went, mm, I'm going to come to this. Like, I'm going to yep. come back to this yeah, card. Yeah, yeah. It's just like the supply is still pretty deep. And like, I'm not going to bother to put it on the cast yet. It's like, you know, 130 copies or whatever. It's like, well, we can wait. We can wait a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I, they have to reach a, I feel like cards have to reach a certain threshold for, <laughs> for me to want to put them on the cast here. But it's the type of stuff where you're like, hmm. At the very least, I'll probably throw one or two of these in the cart for myself. And then we'll revisit it for a pick. In a few weeks, few months. Yep. So congrats to Malou. He wins a $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc., our lovely sponsors. Move on over to our breezy topic of the week. I don't have to cover anything too hard-hitting. We're kind of in a summer lull. The uh, D&D set was cool, but not super remarkable. And we don't have Innistrad previews until early September, as far as I can tell. Uh, We do have have, uh, a piece of news from Star City Games today, um, they announced the return of the SEG Tour, asterisk, online, and SEG Con, asterisk, in person. So they are doing a series of really relatively well-funded um, Magic Online tournaments, all playing uh, Arena Standard. Looks like they go from July 23rd to October 15th. And then they seem to be claiming that they're going to do an SEG Con uh, including the Star City Games Invitational that all of those tournaments will feed into on the weekend of October 29th to 31st. So presumably, you know, this all assumes that COVID is in a reasonable position at that time, but Star City looks like they don't want to leave this alone any longer. They uh, feel like they, they have... A, if I was them, I'd be thinking, we have a lot of brand equity tied up <laughs> in this tour, and leaving it by the wayside any longer than we have to is not the game we want to play. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is all uh, arena, right? Like this is they they bring back the SCG tour, but it's all online for for the feeder tournaments. But SCG Con on the weekend of Halloween is an in person event. It is an in person event. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, well, okay. Because it says Magic Arena champion is he is he uh okay hold on a second so there's a, if you look at the graphic at the very bottom right yeah you got, that's the, what I'm S, you, you got the scg tour online and the yeah. championship qualifier feeding yeah. the star city games invitational which will be at the halloween thing okay but the scg tour online championship qualifier also feeds so, the arena championship because magic threw them a bone Gotcha. Okay, that clarifies it because I was like, wait, hold on a second. Now that, that makes more sense. I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice to see it back. I suppose I'm a little surprised that they're committing to a paper event in October. Um, I'll be honest. I'm not sure that's gonna fire. Like three months. Sh- three months from now. I'm not, I'm not sure either. But I think that. There are certainly states in the U.S. where it can fire relatively safely, given the vaccination levels. And there are states where it really shouldn't should you would never want to be running something like this. Like in North Texas, you don't want to be planning any major events for the next six months. Yeah. And well, so that's where this gets a little messy is like I'm in New York, which is in pretty good shape relatively uh, on the vaccine front and the cases uh but if we're talking about an invitational that's being fed through online events you're gonna have people from all over the country showing up so even if even if you even if you held it in 
New York or wherever has a pretty good vaccination rate, you're still bringing a bunch of people all over the country with God knows what vaccination statuses to this event. And you're going to be doing it in October. Uh, and obviously COVID numbers are going up in most areas in the country uh, with the Delta variant. So looking, I mean, even Mitch McConnell was on Twitter talking about trying to get more people to put their masks on and get vaccinated. Well, get vaccinated and mention masks, uh, which is like, I mean, shocking for a variety of reasons that that ghoul would say that. But uh, clearly they are fearing a significant increase in cases later this year. So yeah, I, all, I, I, all of this is to say that like an invitational October, honestly, I, I would put worse than coin flip to happen. Bottom line, we're starting to get to the borderlands of vendors being willing to commit to these kind of things. And that's certainly worth keeping an eye on. Well, you saw the secret GP, right? That's coming up. Uh, the one that was posted on Facebook. I by, think so. by yeah. some operator I did not recognize in the slightest. Yeah, over in Jersey, it's like a thirty-five thousand dollar pot two-day, effectively a GP. Um, so they're—I mean—they're trying. People are making an effort to to put this stuff on the table. Uh, I I still am of the opinion that it's going to be probably next year before any of this happens in a meaningful capacity. Alrighty, so we can—we uh, just we're going to have a little chat here about. You know, people are probably going on vacation, heading out to the cottage. Maybe they're just kicking back in their backyard, taking a few days off and having some beers with friends and family. Some games for the gamers that they might want to lay hands on and introduce to said friends and family as they enjoy their outdoor summertime fun. Uh, I'm going to throw this one on the table from way back because as a kid, I love this game. And I think that if you've got like five to 12 year olds, you can usually get some mileage out of this. Walmart has a limited edition version of Uno called Uno Minimalista uh, that is ex- like rubs all my graphic designer bones in the right ways. Real, real pretty version of the game. And, what, did you call, uh, what, what did you say the name of it was? It's Uno Minimalista. I will send you a link, kind of. I can sir. Google it. I can Google it. Oh, yeah, that is kind of nifty looking. Real, real minimalist, real slick. Just classic Uno love, and it's like ten bucks. Probably get it delivered to you five minutes before you ordered it, if you <laughs> uh, if you don't mind breaking the backs of the workers in the in the warehouse. Yeah. That one's a nice one. Um, I'm also a big fan for those that are more on the like competitive strategy tip. Like you've got a brother or a sister that whose ass you like to kick in the backyard on a regular basis, and you guys uh, are always looking for new and exciting ways to destroy one another mentally and emotionally. Lords of the Lord of the Rings: The Confrontation is a truly excellent uh, asymmetric strategy game. It kind of has Stratego-like elements and has been in and out of print. I'm not currently sure whether it's in print or not, but you can still usually find it in a bigger gaming store. And the thing I like about this game is it's real easy to pick up. Uh, it's got cool thematic elements if you're into Lord of the Rings. Even if you're not, it's just a straight, straight-up good strategy game. And then the great thing about this game is that whatever strategy you use the first time around... 
you're not going to get away with on the next go. And you can usually play the game out in about 15 or 20 minutes. So it's a good game to like run iteratively and try to get, you know, three steps ahead of, of your partner where you're like, well, they think that I think that I know that they're going to do that thing that they did three games ago, but it's Tuesday. So I know that they're going to be a little bit more likely to go with this strategy and you get into this whole trying to outthink them multiple levels beyond uh, real good game. I think it's like a 7.2 on board game geek, but I, I think it's closer to an eight, eight or nine, 7.5 overall 385, which is actually pretty decent. Yep. Two player, 30 min playing time, 2.19 weight. I use BGG a lot when I'm trying to decide what to buy. Cause I don't buy games too often. And I like to really dig into them before I commit. Cause uh, they're not cheap. Um, this sounds interesting. I don't typically opt for two player games. I'm much more social about it. Um, but I know that there is a real appeal to that type of thing. And it's nice sometimes to play, to be able to set something up like this and be able to step outside, um, you know, magic and some of our other frequent games that we play kind of heads up. Uh, do you have, do you have a favorite game for mixed company, like a social game that's pretty light? Oh, yeah. Let's see. So I guess I'll start with um, I, ha- I had a couple that I want to talk about. The one that I think is least likely to be familiar to our listeners is uh, called Jungle Speed. Have you heard of this before? Yep. We, yeah. we love Jungle Speed. We have a whole subculture we developed around it at one point. Yeah, that is a fun one. So the jungle speed is very basic. You have a a wooden or well, it used to be wooden. Now they're rubber totem. It's like a shaft that you stick in the (laughs) middle of the table. Um, And everyone is just dealt out some cards with uh, pictures on them. Shapes just like a sort of funky geometric shapes. And they're all you have a face down pile in front of you. And you just go around the table flipping your top card. And every time your shape matches the shape somebody else has, you see who can grab the thing in the middle of the table the fastest. The rules are pretty basic. And we have been playing this game. uh, Oh, God. Ten years I think we've probably been playing Jungle Speed, and it is a great time. Uh, it is the one we go back to over and over again. It's going to be a lot of fun with kids. It's going to be, you know, reasonably fun, depending on your family. You could probably play it with them. Uh, your drinking buddies going to have a blast. Um, overall, one of my favorites for a group of people that doesn't require any thinking. Um, it can be fun for a group who's just not into board games at all. 100% endorse Jungle Speed. Uh, not only is it cheap and quick to learn, but as you said, you can play the kids' version, keep it keep it pretty light, keep it fun, don't get too competitive. Or you can go up to the cabin with a bunch of drinking buddies and lay the shots out. In which case, we redubbed that version of the game, Suck It. And the deal is that um, when people flip over shapes, flip over their cards... If their card matches somebody else, you have to grab the baton before the other person you matched with grabs it. If you grab it ahead of them, then you say suck it and they take a drink. Now, we've also played it where you surround the baton in shots. And if you knock any over while retrieving the baton, you have to drink that many as well. Oh, and it's just going to make such a mess. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have seen some people end up in disastrous situations playing that game. 
because the problem, the thing about drinking is your judgment gets worse and worse as you get more and more drunk. So if you lose early on, you start to go and you kind of drop into a spiral and get nixed out in a hurry. Um, nevertheless, an extremely fun competitive drinking game that can also be ultra casual for the kids. Yeah. Now, I, since we're uh, a very mature and responsible cast here, I will point out that my preferred drinking games tend to be ones that penalize the winners. Um, and this is why, uh, for those going back to our just post-college days, I know beer beer pong is the widely known game. But the problem with beer pong is if you're good, you never have to drink or you drink less. Uh, the preferred alternative is beer ball, where you throw ping pong balls at your opponent's cans it doesn't work as well like in a house party which is probably why it's not as popular um because it's a much more active game but that's good because if you're winning you're drinking more so it kind of neutral balances it out a little bit we never really turned juggle speed into anything too aggressively alcohol related but i could i wouldn't mind seeing a version where everyone has like a shot of beer and every time you match you have to drink your shot before you grab it uh that would be kind of amusing might be a good twist on it but it, it, regardless Alcohol or not, I think that that's a great title um, for virtually any group, and it works as you scale up as well. What's your uh, preferred title for more casual groups? Jungle Speed's definitely up there. Um, various like versions of Werewolf that have been published that have additional social... Um, interesting social elements to them we have introduced to success i personally hate those games but sometimes being a good gaming host means tabling the game that the most number of people are going to enjoy not the one that you personally love um, yeah they're the best version of werewolf because i also have gotten very tired of um hidden identity games like that. And there have been some clever twists on the format, but generally I don't find them terribly enjoyable. But the best version of that I have encountered is, oh, what is the name of it? It is Werewolf, but it is 20 questions. So you one per, uh, one person is, uh, you, you basically play 20 questions. I'm thinking of a word. You guys have 20 questions to guess what the word is. But one one person in the group is the werewolf and is trying to mislead the group with like weird questions and you know there's roles involved in it. But it's fun because like twenty questions itself, I think, is relatively amusing, especially um, with the app support is really good. And then that little bit of extra twist adds some fun to what would otherwise is just a road trip game. Sure. Um, if you're with like if you have a posse that's more of a like down to sit down and risk it out for 10 hours there's stuff like scythe from recent years there are variants on risk i think we have risk 2040 in the house which is like a multi-stage risk campaign game where like if you take over a continent you get to name it after yourself for future games and stuff like risk, that i'd be risk legacy yeah um and evolution we've had success with with Groups of people that are strategic minded, but don't necessarily play a lot of strategy games. Oh, I have played Evolution. That one did not land with us uh, strictly because it can lead to some real decision paralysis, um, which is and it, it plays six players, which is awesome. And that's precisely why we picked it up, because our group tends to run a little bit bigger. But if your group has issues with decision paralysis, Evolution is, 
is is gonna be a slog for you. <laughs> we we do have a lawyer in the group who is extremely prone to that process, and I do remember her having trouble with that game. Because mm-hmm. anybody who's always trying to optimize everything they do instead of accepting that your first few games of something are part of a learning process where you're not even trying to win, you're just trying to see what happens if. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, th- those people will get caught up in 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 those games that have a lot of you know forks in terms of the decision tree. Yeah, I mean, the, my problem with evolution that it's not that I think evolution was a bad game. It's just it's got a pitfall that it's certain people will fall into, but. Um, a lot of games are tend to be even games where they present you a lot of choices on the outset are designed such that realistically there's only a couple that you would probably pick um, so you don't feel like even if you have 25 choices you feel like you really only have two or three but evolution just kind of was like didn't feel like that it was like wow all of these seem like legitimately fine choices and you're just like uh and i you i also have to because of the way the turn sequencing is, you have to try and figure out which one you're supposed to take first because of what your opponents might take. And oh my God, I'm just, I can feel myself slowing down just thinking about that game. <laughs> Very similar in outcome to Jungle Speed, I would put Pit in that category. Hmm. That's a card game where you're basically just, it's like a, kind of like a version of Crazy Eights where everybody goes all at once. So it has a very like stock market floor circa 1930 feel. Oh. Um, you, you start with a hand of like wheat and gold and iron and silver or whatever. It's all commodities. And you're trying to get just a clean hand of all the same thing. And the way the game functions is everybody just yells simultaneously based on whatever cards they're trying to get rid of. They put them face down in front of them and then they just go, like say they put three iron and they're trying to dump. They just go three, 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 three and everybody else around the table is saying some variant. They're saying one, two, three, four, five, whatever. And if somebody else is saying three and you're saying three, you're allowed to match with them and you just toss each other the cards and then keep rolling. And it, because it's so fast paced and error prone because people tend to like forget that they just like traded with somebody 30 seconds like 60 seconds ago and then they make the same trade back the other way and set themselves back two steps um there's a lot of laughter around the table usually with pit Mm -hmm. and and it works as long as you don't have one person just like if you don't have that hyper competitive person that's going to get angry if something is slightly slight like a slight bend of the rules because there has to be a little bit of flexibility. Somebody's going to like drop a card and flip it over and people are going to see it and whatever. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to be able to just roll through whatever goes down and just laugh your way out of it. Yeah. There's definitely um, a lot of flexibility in some of these titles that has to adjust for your play group because some games will be very good if your group can be a little more loosey goosey, um, but won't work as well if you have a couple of rules lawyers. But at the same time, some games aren't fun if people don't take it seriously enough. Uh, so that's certainly a consideration across the board. The game I was thinking of, by the way, was Where Words. Okay. Uh, that was the title for the one I was thinking of. Um, I would be remiss not to mention code names. Uh, very easy to teach your family members. Uh, pretty solid. Um, I, I think that's fine for a family game. I don't think it's quite as exciting with, with families just because if you're not, I think it's very good at what it is. It does seem like it doesn't hit with groups of families quite as well as other games sometimes just because if the best part of that game is when you really start to try and get clever and work the system, which people who are kind of fresh to it aren't going to do. I mean, Codenames definitely rewards someone who's pr- 
practiced and kind of gets it. Um, another one we encountered uh, is monikers. I don't know if you've heard of that one before. Nope. Monikers is pretty cool. It's um, it's basically a uh, actually good version of Cards Against Humanity, um, where it's you have this massive pile of cards, and each card essentially has one thing on it, uh, and it could be like uh, the Kool Aid Man, um, General Butt Naked. Uh, the guy in RoboCop who gets shot in the groin, uh, Grimace from McDonald's, right? Just like all, just totally across the board. And it's essentially, it's, um, uh, oh shoot, what is it? It's a very basic game that I'm thinking of that like people have been playing for decades. Uh, ah, shoot, uh, charades. Think of it like charades, but okay. it's, it, it, like it's played in rounds with the same group of cards. So like you have a set of like 30 cards you're going to play with this group. And the first time through this set of cards, you have to get them to say the what's on your card. Like I have to get you to say cool, the Kool-Aid man. Uh, and I can say anything other than Kool-Aid man. So, you know, red guy made of a glass jar full of juice, blah, blah, blah. But then we once we finish the pile, we play through the same pile again in random order. But now I can only say one word. To get you to get, think when I what to get you to say Kool Aid, and then on the third round I can't say anything. I now have to act it out to get you to get to Kool Aid Man. So it is it's very fun and it kind of warms people up to it, uh, which makes it great. And the breadth of cards is, is tremendous, especially if you pick up a couple of the expansions. So it's extremely replayable. Again, a great party social game that you can play both with kids as long as you curate the card list a little bit and as you know drunken degenerates as well. Fair enough. Uh, Hopefully that gives people a pretty decent set of options they can go explore for some summertime fun. We should should make sure to hit the top end is what is your pick for like the Grognards? Yeah, I was looking over the the top 20 currently on BoardGameGeek and I was having the thought that almost none of this is stuff I would want to table with rando group of folks. But if I'm with... A bunch of people that I know can be trusted for strategic stuff. Uh, I guess my first one is I definitely don't recommend Gloomhaven. Mm, no, I mean that's like D and D, right? Like that's just going to be a uh, an ongoing campaign. It's not meant for a one shot. Well, Gloomhaven could be is can't could be played through an afternoon, and people that are into it will enjoy it. I I, th- I find I can't believe Gloomhaven's number one on board game Geek. I I don't think it's even close. Hmm. The I, I think the game is incredibly kibbly, and it's a much better video game than it is a board game. Um, we have the board both versions, and the video game version takes care of so much of the administration of it that it improves the game greatly. But in doing so, without the kibble and the fiddliness, it actually exposes the game as being, I think, overly simplistic. <laughs> And and I think that the, the the way that you can difficulty scale in this game so that that's not the case ends up just being one of those arbitrary, like assigning difficulty levels that are unreasonable without them being more interesting or more fun. Um, so I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Gloomhaven. If you can get your hands on a copy of Kingdom Death, um, I still think that's the best campaign game for a group of like hardcore strategy people because it has a bunch of super interesting elements that are absent in a lot of other games and it's got top tier uh world building and tone art style um and and it's a good it's a collaborative game it's similar to pandemic 
where you're working t- together towards a goal and and not being pitted against each other. So it's good I, for bonding experiences. I I uh I can't speak to whether Kingdom Death is good or not, not having played it. But I do. It does feel kind of like saying you should check out uh, Kingdom Death is sort of like saying, ah, if you're interested in magic, you should try Vintage. Like, would you would you like to spend ten thousand dollars to play this game? Yeah, it's not that. The thing is, like, (laughs) Kingdom Death publishes a bunch of figures for that are ancillary to the game, and that's where most of the cost comes in. The core game is still out there, available in the you know three to four hundred dollar range, which is not trivial, but. If you're the kind of people that are going to enjoy it, you're easily going to get your money's worth out of that. So are all the ancillary pieces they print, are those just cosmetic or are those like adding new monsters and units to the experience? Large portions are cosmetic or cosmetic alternatives to existing things or just stuff to put on the shelf. Um, there are a bunch of modules that do add to the game, but you're probably not going to need them until you're 60 or 80 hours in. Mm. Uh, because it's basically like you can start as Children of the Sun, and that's a specific 20-year path where you basically have 20 long rounds, um, and each round includes a couple of sub-rounds. There's like a town-building portion, there's a hunt portion where you go out and fight a mount- uh, fight a monster, and if it goes really well, then you guys are going to be in good position, and if it goes poorly, you're starting to deplete like your human, resor- human resources <laughs> along with other resources, and you're going to run into trouble sooner rather than later. Um, and then basically usually what happens is either your community collapses because you're all dead, or you win, th- <laughs> you you win through to the final boss fight, and then you probably die anyway. But it's a glorious death. The hmm. and then there's a bunch of ways to tweak the game with these other modules so that you can make it easier or more quirky or just make it different, like a like a whole different set of things to consider in terms of how you manage your town because of the requirements of the things that you worship or whatever. Um, and then there's all sorts of other content that they are from their Kickstarter four years ago that they still haven't delivered. Mm. Whenever whenever that lands, who knows what that's all going to do, but it, apparently it's going to be pretty crazy. Mm. Um, but I think they, there's a lot... In the basic version of the game, Some somebody in the group needs to read the manual <laughs> before, <laughs> before setting up the game. That seems um, like uh, something that wouldn't need to be stated normally. <laughs> well, like, seems like a, it seems like a pretty obvious, like, someone should read the rules. <laughs> It, the thing is, it's not really like you kind of need a DM. Like, there's not really a dungeon master in the game, but it's it's good if there's somebody to keep thing that knows what's going on to keep things streamlined. So mm. there's not a lot of like, oh fuck, how does this work? That's kind of like de- de- kind of degrading the tone of your playthrough. It's kind of like if in the middle of Dark Souls you had to like go read a manual for 20 minutes. It's gonna kind of take you out of the experience. Likewise, you want kind of someone where you're like, oh, am I allowed to do? And the guy goes, yeah, you can do that. And then yeah. proceed. You, you kind of want to know it all at the table that's played before, ideally. I don't I don't think it's a great game to say take up at the cottage for a 24-hour <laughs> stint and no one's ever played it before. Because you probably are just going to give up on the setup and, and interpreting, interpretation of rules and say, ah, let's just go play this thing we, we know and love. Well, I, I will tell you, so Kingdom of Death sounds really interesting. I would love to get a chance to play it at some point, although it is, um, I don't know anyone really other than you that had it. And it's, um, well, well, here's the thing. It is actually available on, 
what is the virtual oh virtual, tabletop simulator yeah virtual t- table simulator on steam you can actually get oh. the kingdom death download and mm. it's it's exquisite people have said that it is nearly flawless in terms oh. of its setup so I do you have could certainly simulator. you could certainly download the module and start fooling around with it because kingdom death can be played as a one player game so you know you could run through you know a few years of the game and see if it appeals um i also think that i've as a dm I think that Dungeons and Dragons with people that have never played it before is actually the most fun Dungeons and Dragons, especially hmm. if you're willing to unpack 80% of the rules baggage and play a streamlined version of the game. So one of the ways that I recommend going about that is like, say you're just going to play with mixed company, like some teenage cousins and, you know, uh, a D&D curious uncle or something, and you're just going to handle a small party of two to four people. You can just make them be themselves, give them pre-rolled sheets, pre-select their spells and everything for them, and then just tell them, you are yourself, you wake up one morning and you are all in this magical forest. Hmm. And then you, they, they have a, immediately they connect to their character because it's them. So it's not, <laughs> you don't have to worry about them because you talked about decision paralysis. Big part of people not getting into D&D is the... How, what character do I want to be? And then the process of how, like, how much information there is to consider in making those decisions and people being scared to make the wrong decisions or not really understanding which decisions even matter. Yeah. So I think pre-rolled characters are the way to go. And you can get those from, like, there's, like, a, a rule, a D&D character and instant D&D character you can search up on Google that just kind of, like, rolls you a, a level one sheet. And you could just hand that off to them with their name on it and say, it's you. Like, this is not like some random character. You are you. And then at level one, they don't even have to have a role assigned. Like, you can you can hand them a level zero character or something. Or you can say, okay, you are a ranger, but you can change your mind after first level. And then just give them some real basic scenarios. Keep it, keep it pretty straightforward. Like, they go around a corner and there's an ogre and two goblins and they fight. And then just get get the read of the room. And if the room is enjoying themselves, then you can start to introduce concepts like you can pick your own spells and whatever. And if they're not really feeling it, you just die. You go, okay, that was cool. Thanks for trying. And then you switch them over to something like jungle speed that, you know, they're going to get, they're going to get right off the bat. Uh, that sounds for, that sounds interesting. I have never gotten to try D and D. It was one of, it's one of those things. It's like Warhammer. You kind of need someone who already has been there to show you the path and just none of my buddies ever got into it, but it does, that does sound fun. I have to imagine it's probably hard to get your boomer dad into it. Um, depending on the kind of guy he is, but it seems like it could, it could work for, uh, you know, maybe a couples or three couples getting three semi nerdy couples who get together for wine and decide to give it a shot one night. The, 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 the mistake to avoid is to put the three manuals in front of people. Because there yeah. are there are three core books that you need to play the game: the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Monster Manual, and the Player's Guide. Some DMs will just give people the Player's Guide, but even that is hundreds of pages of material. So I'm I'm real big on with especially if everybody at the table's new, keep it simple for yeah, sure. Yeah, I I have not looked into their material, but I have to imagine Wizards of the Coast has spent the last decade trying to make D and D products more and more and more accessible for normal people because that is 
I mean, right. It certainly earned its reputation as being uh, fairly dense for someone to just walk into. Well, and, they, um, and they've been successful. They've quadrupled the revenues of the brand or whatever. But the thing is that... And, did Wizards or did Critical Role? <laughs> well, I mean, part and parcel of the same thing. But the thing is that 5e is known to be the most accessible version of the game. <laughs> and it's still very, very dense. I can't even imagine what playing third, third or fourth edition was like for brand new players at like tables where nobody had an experience and somebody was just like, I guess I'll DM like that just must've been hours of slogging through material to figure it out. Yeah. I, I, I didn't go through it. I one time in college and this was back in like 2008, 2009. So that was probably fourth edition. I'm going to guess maybe third. Uh, we all decided we were going to try it. No one had ever DM'd, and we spent like three days building our character sheets and then never played. <laughs> uh, that was my experience with it. Um, I just to rewind slightly. I think your point about looking into the rules before you play uh, Kingdom Death is necessary. That's just, that's just, that should just be the rule um, for any game. Like at this point in time, whenever we decide to we're going to play a new game, we decide that before we have gotten together, usually a day or two at least prior to it, and we say the person who owns it has to have read the rule book, and everyone has to have shown up having watched the let's like the rules explainer video, uh, so that like you don't go in having no clue what you're doing. Like at least have watched it, have heard the terms, have gotten an idea of what the game is, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more when we sit down. But yeah, I mean it's it really is a time sink especially on some of these higher complexity games to try and sit down and learn it all at once and like you just you can't really ingest all of that in one shot not well and even with a like experienced gaming team you're you're still can't really expect people to stay focused for more than three or four hours especially if there's kids or work calls or dinner to get made or whatever and the last thing you want is to be in the middle of some really sweet game and everyone's like, oh, we got to we got to break this up. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 That we try you, hard to avoid that. Yeah. You'd much, much rather know you're hitting the table hot so you can get into it and maximize your time. Yeah. Now, I, I will say that I'm, I, I did scroll through here, the BGG, you know, top list. And I think I played a good chunk of like the top 30 ish stuff, a fair percentage of it. Um, there's a lot of a lot of choosy ones in here. Clank and Scythe, I'm big fans of um, Terramiska, some other stuff in here. But the one that I, I, I recommend everyone who's into gaming and this is a, this is actually going to hit pretty well for Magic players, especially. And I, I've mentioned before, I think is Terraforming Mars. Truly just a fantastic experience um and it's it's sort of in the same vein as a lot of other deck builders you've played um dominion being the kind of the originator of that archetype and then you had stuff like ascension and i think starforge was like that which was uh was that frank karsten or one of those guys um Clank is also a deck builder, but uh, ter what Terraforming Mars does, and I have to say this, Terraforming Mars is the closest thing you can get to cube in a box. Um, it's cube that doesn't require you to know how to play magic. And the flavors is, is pretty solid, but one of the biggest, one of the most, I guess, frustrating parts of playing um, most deck builders like Dominion and all those types of games is that you start to build your engine and then the game's over and you feel like you never really got it to do what you wanted it to do. But TM kind of gives you a little bit longer runway and you really get to put something together and it 
do it. And it feels very rewarding to pull that off. Even if you're doing poorly, it tends to be pretty fun. You know, the last place is usually still chugging along and having a good time because you don't, you mess with each other a little bit, but not severely, not enough to like really make each other feel awful. The expansions in the board, the, the, both the card expansions and also the board expansions are all pretty necessary if you like it, um, because the additional components add a great deal of uh, replayability. Um, an expansion. Uh, we don't play with the prelude stuff. Um, and if you if you know if you know what that is, then you understand what I'm saying. But I just I have found that the the game is very satisfying, very enjoyable over and over and over again because you can get a very different experience each time you play. And for Magic players, it hits really well because it truly does feel like you're getting the play cube as just sort of like this nice tight little package where you get to draft some cool archetype and have fun with it. And like winning is great, but the more important thing is getting to do your cool thing. Uh, and it just hits those notes better than anything else I've played. Yeah, fair enough. We I've only played it, I think, once during a cottage trip, and we did enjoy it. Um, I put it alongside a bunch of other kind of similar uh, descendants of Settlers of Catan-type games. There's like resource management and battles over resources um, that tends to play best when everybody's kind of on the same level. Like if you have a level playing field of experience and and skill. Um, they tend to be games, I think, where it's kind of like playing Risk. If you have one person that just like attacks without strategy, they just throws off the whole game for everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, lots of games have that function in some way or another uh, that will bomb it. TM um, doesn't really have king making. Like one person deciding to tank their game is unlikely to ruin anyone else's. It'll just be bad for them. The, the most egregious part that you might experience in TM is if one person is just heads and shoulders better at the game than everyone else, it's going to be a runaway. But that's true of most games. So it's hard to hold that as a, a slight against it. All right, so I think we gave people some solid options for their summertime fun. Where can uh, folks find you online, Travis? I am on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I will be glad to chat uh, TM if you have questions or, or want to know how to cultivate a good play experience. And and uh, I may even be inclined. Uh, it's all buried. I have uh, I 3D printed a bunch of stuff for Terraforming Mars before, way before they ever released their actual 3D printed product but I'm not digging it all out to take pictures right now. Uh, and you can also message me this week, starting Friday, to complain about how hard the latest Path of Exile League is. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering, single sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of episode 281. A uh, pleasant conversation as always, and we will join, I'll join you next week, James. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.